the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Welcome to The Common Good on this Monday afternoon. My name is Brian Fromm, joined alongside Ian Simpkins once again. Hello. Welcome back, man. Here it is, another week. We survived the weekend. Yeah, you and I always love to talk about how for pastors, weekends are somewhat survival mode. You preached for the first time this week. It's Yeah. Uh, it's, pre- it's, I should say preached for the first time since you had a baby. <laughs> I mean, both those statements are true. <laughs> it was the first time that week I preached and since part. I had a baby. Yeah, so it's been a little over a month, actually. We wrapped up the Explore God series. Yep. And it was also for us uh, Baptism Sunday, awesome. which is honestly maybe my favorite Sunday of the entire Because we have people that uh, are planned to be baptized, but we also give this invitation for people to be oh, you do. spontaneously baptized. And it, man, it brings me to tears every time. Like people said yes, like right in the moment. We got to celebrate. And, and, and the Yellow Box does such a great job of like, Blowing the roof off the place. Yep. Like there's no, there's not a golf clap in the room. Like ever, like it's just cheering and people are hugging each other and people are crying and it's. Awesome. We had people that cheered so extravagantly in the baptismal they almost like fell over. Like it was, <laughs> it was. Uh, oh man, I loved it. It was such an exciting day. Oh, that's fun. See, it's good when you like your job. <laughs> it's true. It's true good story. When you like your job. Uh, also, though, the Oscars were last night. Oh, were they? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that is exactly right. I feel like you and I are in the stage of life. Like I was listening to the radio coming in here this uh, today, and they were talking about the Oscars and all the movies they talked about. I didn't know what they were. Isn't that weird? Yeah. Well, because they're not Disney movies or animated. For me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I was actually out with a couple of uh, a couple of really close buddies of mine, and it was on the TV behind one of them. I could I could see it, and uh, I was like, "Is that the Oscars?" And they're like, yeah, where have you been? I'm like, I, don't, I had no idea it was even coming. Yeah, I'm in newborn world. That's where you are. So, yeah, I always feel like Oscars. I did see one of the movies this year. I saw Bohemian Rhapsody. Yeah, I haven't even seen that yet. I enjoyed. I enjoyed that movie, but I don't know if it's worthy of an Oscar, but it was, it was good. <laughs> it was good. Although, last night, I did see one moment that I really enjoyed, and that was I happened to turn it on when Bradley Cooper and Lady, Lady Gaga sing, uh, sung their song, Shallow. I heard that it was pretty... Pretty incredible. It's good. Really? Yeah, look it up online today. You All right, will, I'll uh, find you'll enjoy it because he, as an actor, being able to sing that live was... Was it good? Was it like good for an actor or was I, it actually... I thought it was good for good. I'll have to check that out. I thought it was good being good. So uh, those were the big stories uh, of yesterday for our lives, preaching and doing the church thing. Um, Ian, there was a hard story over the weekend that we thought we would jump in on, and that's the story of Patriots owner Robert Kraft. This yeah. came out on Friday. Uh, Robert Kraft and uh, many other people uh, were arrested or charged with soliciting prostitution at a specific day spa in Jupiter, Florida. Yeah. Um, and, and so he, that came out on Friday, and everybody was really surprised. Like, this guy is worth $6 billion. Yeah. 
and he's going to a going to a massage parlor and right. this and that and and the story kind of came a be, came to be about him right and so what what's this guy the owner you know he's in his seventies just a misdemeanor charge is this actually a big deal right. um, but then the stories start coming out about who the women were mm. in this massage parlor and. I think that's the real story. Well, and I think part of what's difficult for me about hearing stories like this is how prevalent these stories seem to be. Like I just did a little quick Google research on yeah. you know what what the global issue looks like, what it looks like in the United States, even just in terms of um, sex trafficking or human trafficking. The statistics for Illinois alone were like heartbreaking. I, I thought it was a typo. Like I, it was really mm-hmm. kind of, and there's a number of great ministries in the Chicagoland area that um, are just bent on, on, on finding solutions yep. to eradicate this. But every time I hear them talk about what an issue this is, even like right in our home state in our hometown, like it, it is, I mean, this is the story that's kind of making national headlines right now, but I, I don't even know that the story is ultimately about him specifically. I think no. it's such a systemic problem that is, for some reason, successfully remains in the shadows in a lot of circles, yeah. and I, I just don't hear a lot of people like outright talking about it. Yeah, the, uh, reading the statistics here, sex trafficking generates annual profits of nearly $100 billion, according to the International Labor Jeez. Organization. And, wow. and when you start to read the stories, and in some ways, this is why it's good, not for Robert Kraft, but for somebody high-profile to get caught in something like this, because it starts to bring the stuff, like you said, out of the shadows— that they said, I was watching the Today Show this morning, and they were saying that these women working there uh, were brought over from China, most of them, with the promise of just a normal job. And wow. then they got here, uh, and they were they were immediately basically put into sex slavery. Wow. Like These aren't even people who were here like trying to make a dollar. They, they were brought over under the pretense of a regular job. Oh, my goodness. And to know that this is prevalent throughout our culture and our country – in fact, we just had the Super Bowl, and they say that Super Bowl is the number one event yearly where this kind of uh, human trafficking and sex trafficking goes on. I feel like I, like you said, this is why you and I, were, before we got on today, we're like, we need to have somebody on in the coming days. Yes, right? Somebody who can speak intelligently about this. Totally. You and I are just speaking emotionally about right, it. Right, right. Um, but I don't even I don't even fathom this to be a problem. And then you read about it, and you're like, this is one of the greatest crises we have nationally and internationally going on at all. Well, one of the things, one of the stats that I found was that an estimated 5 million people are trapped in forced sexual exploitation globally. That's not just human, tra- that that's sexual exploitation specifically, 5 million people across the planet. That number, it's amazing to me that it, it has somehow remained, though, such an in-the-shadows story. Like, it feels like every Super Bowl there's, a, there's an uptick in people paying attention to this stuff, and then it disappears to the next Super Bowl. Yep. And if these numbers are even remotely true, and I think that they are because I've been you know researching a number of different sites, right. like how is there not – I don't understand why there isn't like an absolute urgency. And maybe there is that we're just not paying attention right, to. Right, right. Like that's exactly what you were saying. I'd love to have an expert on that can talk a little more about like people doing work in the front lines because we're both – you know, we're we're white suburban pastors. Maybe, maybe there is stuff that you and I are blind to oh, totally. that we're not paying attention to that is, is worth, um, I don't know, hopefully talking about more and more here because I think, man, the exploitation of, of women and children in particular is is so not only atrocious but, to me, clearly in the front of the heart of God. And, uh, I, and for us, we need to care about that. And I think pastorally and as believers, that becomes where the rubber meets the road here. It's um, – 
if we believe everybody's created in the image of God, everybody has that value instilled in them by their creator, right. then it can't be okay that there's anybody who's facing this. Like, it's not okay for us to go, well, I don't ever see it going on. Right, right. And so that's why the good things is you know, you've got the International Justice Mission and other organizations doing unbelievable work. One crazy story, when we were starting our church in Downers Grove, um, I don't know if this is still the true, but I went out with the village manager yeah. and literally said to him, uh, what are some of the issues facing Downers Grove? Okay. This is an upscale, a suburban Chicago suburb. Right. Uh, he said, maybe our number one issue, this is 10 years ago, he said, maybe our number one issue is prostitution on Ogden Avenue. In Downers Grove, Illinois. I live off of Ogden Avenue right now. Wow. I remember almost falling out of my chair, but then you start to think, you're like, well, there's some kind of low rent, um, some low budget motels there. There's right. some other stuff. And you're like, I think my point being, I don't think we can say, well, this happens in impoverished areas. This happens across the globe. It happens in the suburbs. It happens to $6 billion guys no who own the Patriots. This is an epidemic that I think the church has to be concerned no about. Kidding. I, I heard a definition of privilege years ago, and the definition was something like one, one of the aspects of privilege is thinking something's not a problem because it's not a problem for you. Yeah. Right. And you were kind of alluding to that, like, man, this is something that maybe isn't at the forefront of my mind, but the more that I read stories like this, the more I think maybe it needs to be. Maybe, maybe I need to commit more bandwidth to standing up for defending, for going, helping support organizations that are helping people get out of this, the slave trade, the sex trade, all these yes. different things that I think uh, are sort of these quiet killers that are, are committing horrific atrocities across the planet. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, coming up next, we're going to have the privilege to talk to two people, Amy Plummer and Eric Dorsey. Speaking of social justice, they are doing cool work through the church uh, in some social justice issues, and we're excited to talk to them. That's what's coming up next on The Common Good on AIM 1160, Hope for Your Life. (laughs) Welcome back to The Common Good on AIM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm, and joined again by Ian Simpkins. Ian, one of our favorite things about doing this show and being pastors is that we've got some contacts in the area to come in and talk about just some interesting things and to make the area aware of different ministries and different things. And so we have that pleasure right now. Uh, We are excited to welcome two people into the studio right now, both Amy Plummer and Eric Dorsey. Let me give you their backgrounds first. Amy has been with Community Christian Church for 10 years, working in a variety of restore-centric roles. She currently directs Community Freedom, Community 412, and is the Restore Champion for Community's 10 locations. That sounds like a lot of work. <laughs> you guys are paying her well for that. Rest, rest, restore Champion sounds the coolest of all Isn't of those that titles. Cool? That's good. And Eric Dorsey is also here. He is a pastor for Community Freedom in Joliet and Community 412 coordinator at Community Christian Church in Naperville. So thank you guys so much for joining us today. Thanks Thank you for having us. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, let me just, let's just help people understand what it is you do. So why don't you both take just a couple minutes and tell us what it is that you do. Well, I, um, like I said, I'm the Restore Champion. That's probably my favorite title. (laughs) Uh, It should be. (laughs) So good. (laughs) And really what it means is I get to work with our 10 locations across the Chicagoland area and help them figure out what are we going to do to engage in this restore effort. So what are we going to do locally to care for our neighbors next door? What are we going to do regionally to care for our neighbors down the street? And what are we going to do kind of, you know, globally to care for those neighbors around the world? That's awesome. I'm helping them just figure out how to direct that, implement that, um, and just get started. Yeah, that's awesome. And Eric, how about you? Well, Amy is my 
backbone. <laughs> <laughs> you chose wisely, sir. Yes, well done. Yes, absolutely. So I'm the community freedom pastor. Um, as Amy said, she's a director. Uh, we're planning a church inside of a prison yeah. in the Joliet area. This is a very unique uh, concept. There's lots of different uh, prison ministries out there, but this is unique because we're actually looking to plant a church location inside of a prison to make mm. the residents of that facility a part of a church family. That's awesome. Uh, to support them in helping them find their way back to God, uh, helping them in their walk with God while they're incarcerated, but also helping them get reacclimated back into society um, and all of the different difficulties that they face in, in coming out and transitioning back into the community. We're going to uh, look to help them with that oh, as well. That's awesome. All right, so Eric, I, I actually know a little bit of your story, but can you just share with us a taste of why why are you passionate about planting churches and prisons? I think when people hear that, it's usually one of two responses. One, like, I didn't know you could do that. And the second question that I often get is, uh, why? Like, what, what kind of person would want to do that? Like, it just is, I think, so mind-blowing for a lot of people to think about the concept. Um, can you just give us a little bit of your story and your background and why you're, why you're passionate about this effort to plant churches in prisons? Sure. So a little bit about my story, a little snapshot is I was raised in church, uh, was ordained minister at, an, at a young age, um, had an experience in my own personal life where I was incarcerated. Mm-hmm. And that really impacted me in a very deep and impactful way. Um, uh, I don't have enough time to get into the depth of that story, yeah. but mm-hmm. I can say that it, it transitioned my way of thinking, changed my way of thinking about how I look at prison ministry, mm-hmm. those that have been incarcerated, um, the whole, but by the grace of God, there go I, I yeah. mm-hmm. experienced that. So wow. I think a lot of times the church, we tend to uh, follow the world in terms of how we see people mm-hmm. uh, behind the labels. And God challenged me to look behind the label and see his children, to see his creation, mm-hmm. and that everyone, no matter what their experience, no matter what they've been through, they have redemptive value. Yes. It's the responsibility of the church yes. to mm-hmm. go after those people and help them kind of reclaim their relationship with God. That's so good, man. That's good. Amy, I'm wondering, you're doing all these roles at the church and through other places of helping restore (laughs) people and helping reach the marginalized. Where's that passion come from for you? Well, you know, um, I'm a single mom, Mm -hmm. and uh, I I got married to a wonderful man, thought that uh, we were going to have this fairy tale end of the world. You know, everything would be wonderful. Um, And then he had got diagnosed with cancer. And uh, passed away about 10 years ago. Oh, I'm sorry. And I think at that point, you know, I just kind of looked around and was like, well, gosh, what am I going to do? I've been a stay-at-home mom for a long time, and um, I, I needed a, a something to do besides yeah. take care of you know, right. three kids under, under six. Right. Oh, uh, and uh, fortunately for us, we had financially, I was able to still stay home, but I, just, I was looking for something to do mm. and, and kind of fell into Community 412. Mm. Uh, and I think for me, you know, it's that same but for the grace of God, like yeah. I, I understand what being a single mom means and, yes, right. and, and the difficulties and the struggles with that. And so I think that just sort of opened my heart to, you know, how much more difficult it is when you're struggling to figure out where the food's coming yeah, or yeah. where, um, you know, where, where the, the next meal is or, or how you're going to pay for rent and, and still trying to navigate and raise three kids on your own. I mean, mm. I think for me that just sort of broke my heart. Um, and and gave me a, a glimpse into a, a whole new world. I'd never in the world and ever imagined that this would mm. be something I would do. Yeah, well, Amy, for what it's worth, uh, sharing an office with you <laughs> that, <laughs> that that passion comes through clearly. Like it's it's mm-hmm. obvious for the both of you that it isn't. It's not just a job. It's not just a thing to fill your time. That like I, I wholeheartedly believe like God has given you both specific giftedness and mm-hmm. passions, and I think that's evident 
in the ways that people rally around you mm-hmm. in these things that you're in, in, in many ways reinventing the wheel. Like there's mm-hmm. things that we're, I think we're um, trailblazing in some pretty powerful ways. And I, I don't know that people realize this, but like your, your role, Amy is year round. I mean, both your jobs are year round, mm-hmm. but community 412 has a number of really amazing initiatives. Would you just talk to us about some of the stuff throughout the year that uh, community 412 makes available? Sure. And I think community 412, the idea for us was, you know, we have 10 locations in, more upper middle class neighborhoods. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so how do we help uh, connect those neighborhoods with other other neighborhoods? Because everybody experiences, I always say this, their own version of poverty. And I think yes. we always think about that in terms of economics. But the truth is we experience poverty in relationships or spirituality, yeah, that's um, right. in just awareness, education. There's yep. things that we understand. And, and partnering communities together uh, it helps us learn from each other, and that's yeah. really the goal. So for Community 412, it's about figuring out how do we partner neighborhoods together so that we can work together to restore God's dream in the that. world. It's not really about you know coming in and being you know this affluent church that can, can fix you. Right. Really We're not coming, here to save the day. No, right. not. Uh, but really coming in and saying, hey, you know what? You have things that you, that you can teach me that I can learn yes. from, and I have things that I can provide to this relationship, and that will make both of us better and stronger. Yeah, that's so good. Um, and good. so it's things like, you know, we work regionally in 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 Aurora, in Joliet, and in Chicago to really kind of create those partnerships. Uh, so Gift Mart is probably the biggest one that people mm-hmm. hear about, and that that what last year we provided families the opportunity to come and shop for their children. Yeah. Um, and pay a nominal fee of $2 a toy mm-hmm. to be able to, with dignity, provide for their children, um, but then also to be a blessing to the community. So we partner with the schools. The schools invite their families to come, and then those those parents provide funding for things that the school may not have had the ability to provide funding for. So library books, uh, school equipment, music equipment, whatever the school might need that year. Um, I know I was just talking to one of our schools in Aurora, and they are going to be taking their funds to add to the playground next year. So oh, that's that's awesome. so good. that will be a community thing. You know, it's not right. even just the school, but that right. playground is there all year long yes. for the community. Yeah. Um, and we just got to be a part of that. We get to be a part of making that happen. That's so good. Like that. That's awesome. Well, we're talking to Amy Plummer and Eric Dorsey. And coming up next, we're just going to keep them here. We're yep. going to keep this conversation going. I also want to ask Amy what it's like to share an office with you. <laughs> that might feel like a conversation. It'll be an off-the-record conversation. <laughs> All of that, we're going to continue our conversation with Eric Dorsey and Amy Plummer. Coming up next on The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm, joined again by Ian Simpkins. Uh, and staying with us from last segment is Amy Plummer. Amy has been the, at Community Christian Church for 10 years, working in a variety of Restore-centric roles, everything from Community Freedom to Community 412, and is the Restore Champion for Community's 10 locations. And also joined by Eric Dorsey, uh, the pastor for Community Freedom in Joliet and Community 412 coordinator at Community Christian Church in Naperville. Let me give uh, a couple of websites for you who are interested in learning more about what Amy and Eric are here talking about. Uh, commun- you can go to communitychristian.org slash justice series or go to communityfreedom.com or community412.org. Eric, before the break, you were sharing how you guys are literally planting a church in, uh, in a prison in Joliet, I believe you, you said, which I find fascinating uh, but I'm curious as to the response you guys have gotten, not within the prison, but maybe from outside. People going, why are you planting a church in a prison? That seems like a, 
maybe a strange move or even maybe some people don't even think it's appropriate. What are Mm. some of the responses you've been getting to that? Yeah, so I guess in a way it is a little bit outside of the box. Um, Let me read you a couple of stats here to kind of paint you a picture of why this is important. Um, So 2.2 million Americans are confined in prison currently. Wow. One out of every three black men in the U.S. will have been incarcerated by the age of 20. Wow. Nearly three million children in the U.S. have one incarcerated parent. And, and those children of incarcerated parents are, are 70% more likely to be involved with, criminal, with the criminal justice system mm. themselves. 700,000 Americans are released from prisons every single year, and more than two-thirds will, will re-offend in wow. the first three years. <laughs> so those are just, you know, some quick <laughs> stats to get you to see the magnitude of the issue that we're facing. Yeah. Yes. I mean, yes. America is the most... Uh, it is the country that has the most incarcerated, incarcerated people right. in the world. Wow. And not just in the world, but in the history of the world. Really? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, wow. I mean, that's mind-boggling. Yeah, no kidding. So I feel that we have a responsibility as a church to be the arms, the legs, the body, the hand and feet of God mm. concerning this issue. Mm. Um, so there's one quick story I'll share with you, and then I'll kind of get to how how we how this translates into the reaction from people. Yeah. Um, so we have a community freedom location out in San Diego, and I was there recently a couple of weeks ago just to uh, meet with the staff, the pastor there, and, and go in and meet the guys. And uh, I was in part of a small group, and one of the gentlemen there was gave me a brief story about how he became uh, incarcerated. Hmm. And he's about 38, 39 years old. He's been incarcerated since he was 18 years old. Wow. He was abused by his dad. Um, at the age of 14, his, his mom put him out of the house to protect mm. him from abuse in his fa- from his father. Wow. When he was 18 years old, he got into an, uh, an altercation, a fight at school. Mm. Uh, he was a good student, was an athlete, and he got into a fight, and because of the situation, he killed this, another young man. And he said he felt the rage from all the years of abuse, the rejection from his mom. He felt mm. like his mom... Chose the father over him, mm. and he had a lot of anger. And he said, in that moment, all of that rage came out, and he realized that he made a huge mistake. But that mistake led him to to be incarcerated. Mm. He got life in prison. And so he said to me, now this is about twenty years later, uh, in this small group. He said, I sometimes wonder what my life would have looked like if I had a good father. Wow. Mm. So the, my message to him was trying to get him to understand that God is a good father mm. and, and getting him to reconcile how uh, the things in his life and, and the picture of fatherhood that he had yeah. was not a correct one. Wow. And, and walking him back to a correct understanding of what it means to have a good father and that God is that father. So mm-hmm. when I talk to people outside the prisons, I try to convey the humanity uh, behind these individuals that are in these situations because we see the statistics and we see um, the labels and we see, you know, ex-felon and the, what they did, but mm. we don't see who they are. So I try to communicate who they are, the people that we're serving. Mm. And from a scriptural standpoint, when you look at, like, Matthew 25, mm. when Jesus talks about, he's talking to his uh, disciples about what it means to minister yeah. And he says that when you've done this to the least of them, right. you've done it unto me. Right. You know, when I was in prison, you yeah. came to visit me. And so those are the things that, that I remind our volunteers and people that when we do this for people, we're doing it as unto Christ himself. That's so and good. it's our responsibility to do that. That's, good. That's so good. So, Amy, one of, one of the things that I love 
that we do at the Yellow Box, maybe one of my favorite things, to be honest, is uh, something we call the Justice Film Series. Mm-hmm. Throughout the year, mm-hmm. we'll show a number of different films, uh, and they're by no stretch Christian, quote-unquote mm-hmm. Christian films. But would you talk to us a little bit about um, how that came to be, what those films are about, what they do, and uh, specifically this next one that's coming up? Yeah, and, and I think, you know, it came out of that understanding of, of everybody experiences poverty. I think, you know, in the Naperville right. setting, it's, you know, we don't see a lot of trafficking. We mm-hmm. don't see a lot of homelessness. Right. So, but those things exist, and as Christians, God calls us to care about them. Yes. Uh, and so this is our fourth season. We've we've been doing this since 2015. That's awesome. Uh, and, and the hope really is to be able to provide a safe place where people can learn more about the topic and ask questions. You know, if there's nothing worse than I have all these questions, but I, I don't want to sound like an idiot and right. ask them in front of anybody. Yeah. Totally. And so really trying to create a safe place where people can explore and learn and then take, you know, we're not, our intention isn't to say this is how you should feel about it, but yes. really saying these are some facts. This is what it looks like on the global level or mm. the national level. This is what, you know, this issue, sex trafficking or, or immigration looks like regionally, locally mm. here. And then to let you go home with a guy that helps you just process the information you've mm-hmm. had yes. that you've received. And our hope is that you might just think about something differently. Yeah. And so, you know, we've, we've t- tackled lots of traffic of things, foster care system, uh, immigration, race and bias, mass incarceration, wow. early childhood education. Wow. I mean, there's some like just things. I think we have these 20 second soundbite ideas of right. what yeah. they all mean. Hmm. Uh, and really, uh, you know, an investment of an hour and a half of time to be able to really maybe get a broader understanding of the topic. Um, we're hopeful will help change, at least change people's hearts and, and yeah. be more compassionate about, about that's the situation. Great. Yeah. So, so tell us about this one that's coming up next then. What, what's it, uh, what's it called? What's it about? Mm-hmm. Just mm-hmm. Uh, time, date, yep. place, all that stuff. So we have five coming up in the next two months. Holy cow. Yes. But our next one is on Thursday, this Thursday, uh, the 28th in Naperville. And it's going to be on the racial wealth gap and the effects really of, economics and politics on that issue. Mm. So we'll have uh, three short films and we'll have a panel, a variety of individuals on the panel who will come up, kind of give you the film, a little bit of more information about the topic. Uh, and then at the end, we'll have a Q&A That's and awesome. let the audience kind of just ask you know questions that, that they may struggle with or mm-hmm. are interested in and want to know more about. That's amazing. So that's on the 28th mm-hmm. uh, at Naperville's Yellow Box. What mm-hmm. time is it at? 7 o'clock. And where can they go to find out more information? They can go to communitychristian.org backslash justice series and they can register. And, and they're not all in the suburbs either, right? We're hosted some no, in the city yeah, and all over so, the place. Uh, on the 14th, we have one in Plainfield. Um, on the 25th, we'll do the racial wealth gap in Chicago. Right on. Um, and then on the 4th, we'll have one in Lamont on immigration. And on the 25th, we have a guest speaker. Dominique Gilliard is coming in. Um, and he wrote a book called uh, Rethinking Incarceration, in which is fantastic. Oh, wow. That's fantastic. Great. Yep. That's great. And Eric, with the last minute or so we have left, if someone has been listening to you and says, you know what, I really want to get involved in that. Like, I got a heart for the prisons. I want to. I love what that guy's talking about. Uh, how could they reach out to you? Or what's what's their next step? So, yes, we. Uh, I think you gave the website mm-hmm. earlier, communityfreedom.com. Um, you can go there. It kind of gives an overview of the vision of community freedom. Mm-hmm. It also, uh, Amy, correct me if I'm wrong, but we have a place down there where mm-hmm. you can submit your information. Mm-hmm. 
and that information will be submitted to myself and Amy, okay. so we can get back to you with more information. That's awesome. Great. Well, Eric and Amy, thank you so much for joining us today. We really love when people come into the studio and just have a chat. So Yeah, you guys are awesome. Uh, I'm so grateful to know Is this what goes on in your office all the time? This is it, man. <laughs> we're, just talk, we're just talking justice stuff all the time. We love it. Yeah, well, thank you guys for joining us. You've been listening to Amy and Eric with us on The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm, along with Ian Simpkins. We're glad that you're joining us on this Monday afternoon. You can follow us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. That's The Common Good Radio Show. And you can always find old shows online at 1160hope.com. You can podcast us. You can find us anywhere uh, we're taking over the world, man. <laughs> Trying to do it. Is that what having a podcast means? We're taking over the world? <laughs> I, I want to play Risk with you one day. <laughs> that it's, feels like a game I could I, win. I feel like it's a beginning. It's a beginning, <laughs> right? Someday we're going to look back over our world domination game. Oh, my gosh. Remember, remember that podcast? Anyone listening, please know I'm distancing myself remember from Brian right podcast. now. Hey, we, we came across a story, uh, you sent it my way, that is so up my alley, and I'm going to take this to my bosses and whatever else it might be. Let me just read you the headline. Experts say, you got to trust experts, right? They're experts uh, for a reason. Obviously, right, right. Experts say people over 40, I am one of those, people over 40 should only work three days a week. Oh, I can't believe you like this story. Love it. <laughs> Love it. A 2016 study published in the Melbourne Institute Worker Paper Uh, found that the best performance of people over 40 years old can be drastically improved by a (laughs) three-day work week. Researchers considered factors like life quality, family structures, economic well-being, and employment, and found that people who worked an average of 25 hours per week performed the best. The overall cognitive performance would increase until people hit the 25-hour mark, and at this point... The scores on the cognitive test started dropping hmm. due to stress and fatigue. Where do I sign up for this? <laughs> you know what? There's not a sign-up link on this story. I'm surprised. There's not like a mailing list that you could be added to here. I am I am sending this to my head elder as we speak right now. <laughs> right now. Oh, you know, the, the end of it is pretty fascinating, though, because it says if you don't slow down, you can face numerous problems in life, such as uh, depression, experience fatigue and lack of sleep, turn to alcohol or drugs in order to relax. Stop being productive even though you work long hours, experience body pains and sore eyes. The relationship with your family or friends can start falling apart. Like those are some of the cautions yeah. of overwork. And I, I'm reading that list. I'm like, oh, yeah, man, that's half of those are my reality right now. But that's I, it's pretty humbling to think through even some of the infrastructures that we think, you know, five, six days a week. That's just normal, right? Yep, yep. Even sometimes when I hear someone say, oh, I, you know, I only work 40 hours. In the back of my head, I'm like, 40, come on. Yeah. Slacker. <laughs> like, come on. That was supposed to be the acceptable baseline, and yeah. like somewhere in the back of our brains, we're like, ugh, only 40? What are yeah. you doing? I, I, it does say here, beyond 40 hours per week, the decline is much more rapid. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's what I just read in the study. Yep. Uh, but there is, let's be honest, none of us are going to get three-day work, work weeks unless we become independently wealthy and decide to <laughs> right. do it that way. Um, but- I do think this brings up issues of work-life balance Mm. and Mm. how do you make sure that you're not just killing yourself working too many hours because this is good research that says the more hours you work past a certain threshold, 
uh, the less productive you're going to be. Right. But for me, the question is also when you're outside of your work hours, what control does work still have over you? Right. How are you getting balance in your life? And this is, you know, we make fun of France a lot, not necessarily <laughs> on this show, but in our country. Uh, so insert your joke here. But this is interesting. It says at the end of this article, it says because of these reasons, France has made it illegal to email employees after work hours. No kidding. Uh, I would like that law here. <laughs> <laughs> illegal? Like, is that too far, do you think? Uh, I, to, think so. I mean, that's a little bit ex- extreme, but maybe it's not. Maybe we're the ones that are being duped into thinking. Yep. And the article ends this way. Numerous scientists claim that we need to find the work-life balance and change the length of the modern work week in order to protect our physical and mental health. And mm. I guess I would ask you that question. That would be our jumping off point. What does work-life balance even look like for yeah, people I'm, in this culture that we live in. I'm the wrong person to ask. I, I won't. I won't even ask you to go from a place of strength here. <laughs> I think um, I once heard a mentor say it's less about balance and more about rhythms. Yeah. So, like paying attention both to daily, weekly, monthly, yearly rhythms because there are going to come times, and we both found this as pastors. Sometimes it's just going to have to be a 65 hour work week. Yep. That's it's unavoidable. Someone's hospitalized, someone dies, something crazy is happening in a community. You, it, you can't, I mean, you could say, I wouldn't say, I'm sorry, I reached my 40. Like, right. I'm, like that to me, clocking, um, clocking out, but to, but to pay attention to the rhythms of like, okay, last week was really chaotic, really stressful, really heavy, paying attention to some of the mechanisms, both in my soul, but also my brain and my body that says, Hey, you you should have a, a later start day on Monday. Yeah. Like you just breathe a little bit easier. You need to maybe delegate something that you normally wouldn't delegate. And I, I think paying attention to rhythms because ba- balance to me, it it kind of appeals to my OCD tendencies a little bit, mm-hmm. right? Like oh, I can uh, I'm gonna get to a place where I've achieved perfect balance where all these things, all these projects take the exact same amount of time every week the way that I planned that to be. And I you know, I'm 36 now, <laughs> I've yeah. still found that to not really be achievable in any level of longevity but like to pay attention to the ebbs and flows of like okay this week's going to be tough however i need to be really mindful then to carve out extra time to be with my family to be present with my kids and not on my email and not on my cell phone rather than uh just letting the pedal always be at the met like i remember years ago my little sister was in detroit and she was a she was a little little kid and we'd been trying to schedule a time to talk and um and she had she had called me or texted me, and I said, actually, actually this week's kind of crazy. Can we do next week? And like little seven year old Ellen said, "You say every week is a crazy week," <laughs> and that was so convicting from the mouth of a seven year old. Like she's picked up on a pattern yep. that I've I've been duping myself, thinking like, ah, next week. Once I get over this hill, next week will calm down, yep. and it just perpetuated this idea that I'm going to eventually find rest. And that was a turning point for me. Like, man, I need to be more courageous in saying no to things sometimes, yep. letting the work just be done. Even There's always going to be more emails. There's always more stuff to do. And that actually, to be honest, revealed even some deeper layers of like the reason you work your fingers to the bone is because you don't really think that you're good enough unless you're always yep. on, you're always accomplishing stuff. Yep. And that that began like a long, a long journey of healing for me. That's good. I, I think one of the things when we talk balance and rhythms, I think those are great words. It's not about the number of hours you work. Like you said, uh, the goal is not like, oh, we should only be working 20 hours. We should. Right. I think in our culture, specifically our connectedness that we have now, I think the most important rhythm that we don't get right for the most part, most of us, whether we're in the business world, the pastor world, whatever else it might be, um, 
is this never being disconnected from work. Right. It's the it's not so much the nine to five grind, not turning into eight to five or eight to six, but it's well, what do I do at eight o'clock at night when I'm at home? Right, right. Am I disconnecting? Am I spending time with my wife and kids? Am I or am I on my phone still answering work emails, right. still checking in? Because then you're never off. And you will not only be less productive, but it's just going to kill you. You're right. go- you are going to burn out. If you don't take a break, yeah. eventually you'll just break. Yeah. <laughs> right? Like, I think, honestly, it's embarrassing, too, how often um, it has to do with uh, reactions or consequences. Like, we'll keep doing that until our wife says, hey, y- you can't keep going at this pace. Or, hey, your kid goes, Dad, I don't see you anymore. Yep. Like, man, yep. as pastors and leaders, I- I'd hope for us to be at the forefront of saying, hey, before this becomes an issue – I'm going to say no to this and carve out this time and be intentional about Sabbath and be intentional about rest. Like it is embarrassing how often um, I'm more responding to those closest to me identifying problems. I want to be ahead of that curve and say, man, I can't head down this road because I know where it leads. Yeah. And something I've randomly do when it's nice outside, which is like three months here in Chicago, (laughs) is just take a walk in the middle of the day. Totally. It just resets me. Yep. Work-life balance, that's a big thing for all of us, and we hope, you, hope you're able to wrestle with that along with us. Well, you're listening to The Common Good on AIM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm, joined with Ian Simpkins. This is The Common Good on AIM 1160, Hope for Your Life. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm, joined again by Ian Simpkins. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. That's The Common Good Radio Show. You can go online at 1160hope.com, and there you can find old shows, or you can podcast us wherever it is that you get your podcasts. So, Ian, a lot of times you and I, we try to have a lot of laughs. Yeah. Uh, we try to talk about stories that are going on nationwide or internationally. I want to tell you a hard story out of my community this mm. week. Not my church community, but my town. Okay. Literally my town. So uh, let me tell this story because it's such – I have found myself, even though I don't know the people involved, I found myself just mm. personally saddened. And, and sad's the wrong word, just burdened by this story. And maybe yeah. – we we love the fact that this is a local show, a Chicagoland show, yeah. and uh, we are pastors in the Chicagoland. And so I live in Downers Grove, um, and this past Tuesday, we got an email. My daughter is a freshman in high school at Downers Grove North High School, and this past uh, Tuesday, I believe, we just got a random email from the principal saying that there had been an incident that a student had been struck by a car. Hmm. And... Um, this played out through the course of the week, and the tragedy of it is that later in the week, you started to hear things that, like, the student that got hit uh, was in really bad shape. And that student, her name is Beth Dunlap. She's a junior at Downers Grove North, star volleyball player, all this yeah. stuff. She passed away this week oh, from her word. injuries of being hit by the car. Gosh. And so you begin wrestling with this as a, as a community. She was literally in the, walk, in the, in the walkway uh, mm-hmm. from the parking lot to the school. Like, this happened in front of the school. 
And uh, you start wrestling with, well, then the word comes out uh, that she was hit by a man from Naperville, I believe. Uh, he was drunk at 11 in the morning or he was under the influence. I don't know if it was alcohol or drugs. And he completely ran a red light. She did nothing wrong. Because when you first hear it, you're like, well, maybe she was distracted on her phone or the car was distracted. But in reality, it was all this guy. And now you're starting to read this guy had prior record, all sorts of stuff. It is everything. And it is so heavy. And the town, uh, I've lived there for nine years or so, and the town is just broken. And I think it's because we all have kids. Like I said, I have a kid in the high school. Um, my daughter did not know this girl. She's uh, Downers Grove North is a really big school, so she did not know this girl. Uh, but even after school on Friday, talking to my daughter, she just has said, Dad, this was just the hardest day. This day was really hard and heavy. And as a dad and as a parent trying right. to, and then as also as a pastor, right. trying to walk people through these things and like trying to not even walk people through, but trying to wrestle with them myself. Uh, I don't know how many times I've come across just such a senseless tragedy mm. so close to my own life. Even though I don't know the people, it's my town. Right. Um, and just wrestling with the questions of of fairness and yep. where does God fit into this yep. and all of these things that come out. And now trying to help my daughter process those questions. Um, man, it's been... Uh, sorry to throw that on you. It's been a hard week for those yeah. of us who live in Downers Grove. Well, I, and I, I really do appreciate you bringing it up too, because we talk about being pastors a lot on the show. Yeah. Um, but I don't know that we often talk about the work of being a pastor. Like right. you made the, you know, the distinction. This didn't happen to someone in your church, but it is your city, right? Yep. And that is part of, I think, sometimes the weight, or it should be, of being a part of a church community is that when the people even outside the quote unquote walls of our church yep. grieve. That should also grieve us, you know, mm. and I think sometimes we, we fail to really truly feel the pains of our cities because sometimes we're kind of caught in these holy huddles. And, you know, certainly when someone within our walls is grieving, you know, that's that's a little more low hanging fruit for us. But yep. that idea of like letting the hurt and pain of a family like, you know, who with with, with kids doesn't hear that story and their heart just sink to something. I don't think you don't have to be a Christ follower Not at all or in any way religious or even spiritual to, to know that. Oh, okay, that feels like a punch to the stomach. I think it also shows something, though, and this Aubrey Sampson last week gave a brilliant interview here brilliant. about her new book, The Louder Song, and it's all about uh, our need for lament and grief, and, and one of the things that we're finding more and more is that, in a lot of ways, our churches want to be places, yes. safe places for people to grieve, but don't know how to do it. Yep. In fact, I remember years ago, you know, we had a, a season of incredible heartache in our church, and I had a bunch of leaders um, you know, both staff and lay leaders come to me and say, we don't know how to manage this. And uh, a good friend of mine, she's a, a hospice chaplain. Mm. So she like deals in the area of grief wow. and death. And she came in and did a, a brilliant like six hour workshop in our church basement, just helping give handles to equip us. How do we actually walk with people when they grieve? And I had, I had no idea how helpful that would be for our leaders. Like they, they said, can we please do that again? Like it was so remarkable. And I, it was like a light bulb moment for me. Like, wow, it, grieving well is more than just being willing to do it. It actually yeah. requires some intelligent thought and some self-awareness. And, you know, when you look at a lot of our, a lot of our songs that we sing are just yes. always positive. They're always victorious, which I'm not against, but there's very little space in our services for, for grief and for pain. There's a, a story I, I read earlier this week. And the headline just reads, Grief Hides in the Church Bathroom. And it's this really kind of gut-wrenching story of why we're so often drawn to, 
to cry in our cars in the parking lot or in the church bathroom because we don't feel like there's space for us in the services to really, truly be honest about our grief. And so often what we do in response is we prescribe a Bible verse or we tell them, well, at least this didn't happen or look for the silver lining or when we're finding more and more what people need to hear in their grief is, man, pain is hard. Yeah. My heart sinks with yours or even just sitting silently and weeping with someone like that in our culture seems so hard to do because we're, I think, sometimes obsessed with answers or solutions or pulling up out of the season. And I think there's just a lot of, of growth, a lot of work that's done when we're willing to just simply grieve with people. Yeah. And like you said, I think we need to be able to tell people, listen, I, I can give you some theological answers. I can give you some ideas, but it doesn't answer it all. Right. It doesn't make it better. Right. The, the reality of Jesus and the hope of eternity and the hope of this brokenness not being case will give us hope, but it doesn't make the grief better right now for that parent right. who just lost that child. It's, right. I think as Christians, we need, like you said, and just as humans, we need to be okay just going, man, this is just, everything about this is terrible. Yeah. There's not like a, well, here's the lesson we can take out of this. Right. Here's a, it doesn't mean God doesn't work through tragedy, but it doesn't mean the tragedy has to be viewed positively. Like, yeah. This is just, I find myself driving by the high school, just thinking about this family and praying Gosh. for them and going, there's nothing, there's no silver lining to this. There's nothing good about this. And this is a story that has some press, but the truth is everyone's fighting a battle you know nothing about. Absolutely. Right? Like the lady in front of you at the grocery store, the waitress that, you know, dropped your order. Like everyone you interact with is fighting some battle that you know nothing about. And I realize that sounds a little Hallmark cheesy, but like for me to have that somewhere in the forefront when I want to lose my cool on somebody, whether I know them or not, yeah. when, I, when I'm tempted to be really impatient or to be rude, like to remember – Oh man, everyone's carrying a. It may not be as tragic as the story you told. Yep. Um, but everyone is is grieving or bearing some kind of weight yep. that they maybe haven't told a soul. What would it look like for me to extend even the slightest amount of grace and humanity in this moment? Yes. To in any way alleviate that. that to me, that's the call of the Christ follower. Yeah. It's not just simply to go on mission trips and proclaim gospel, but to like bring these small moments of life and beauty and forgiveness and mercy to everyone we meet everywhere, always, which is way easier said than done, but I think a really important task. That's a good word. So be praying for that family, the yeah. family of Beth Dunlap. But as you said, there's there's people grieving all over the place. And as followers of Jesus, we want to be sensitive uh, and we want to be caring and not flippant uh, about these things. Right. So we want to wrestle with the hard things, man. We always say that right here on The Common Good. Uh, coming up next, uh, we are going to talk about a former president and also an NBA basketball star, Uh, who had some interesting words to say, what does healthy manhood look like? Mm. Uh, We're going to talk about that next here on The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm alongside Ian Simpkins. You can follow us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. That's The Common Good Radio Show online also at 1160hope.com. Ian, this past week was the... Uh, NBA All-Star Game, and one of the guys at the All- NBA All-Star Game was Golden State Warrior superstar Stephen Curry. Right. And Steph Curry's the best, right? Le- everyone loves to watch him play. He's a little guy who's shooting from a mile away, but the- it was in Charlotte, which is his hometown, and Steph Curry's really taken, uh, uh, trying to do good work in Charlotte, even though he plays uh, out in Golden State. Right. Uh, but But he was with Barack Obama recently, and uh, I know when we bring up the name Barack Obama or Donald Trump, 
or George Bush, people are immediately like, I hate him. I love him. <laughs> and let's just try to be a little more nuanced about it, right, right people? But uh, Barack Obama, we're going to play an audio clip here in a second because he said stuff uh, to main, an audience mainly of young boys when to responding to a question about being a man. Yeah. So this isn't a political question. Right. This is a conversation about what does it mean to be a man? We had the whole Gillette commercial in the last couple of uh-huh. weeks about toxic masculinity. Uh, and you got to know Obama is not only speaking to to boys about what's it mean to be a man, but he's speaking uh, powerfully to primarily African-American boys here that's right. about what it means to be a man. And, and you and I both heard the clip and we're like, that's good stuff. Yeah, that's good stuff. So, so let's listen to the clip of the former president, Barack Obama, speaking to this group uh, of young boys about manhood. I mean, let, let, let me say this. Like, if you are really confident about your financial situation, you probably are not going to be wearing an eight-pound chain around your neck. Because you know, oh, I got bank. I don't have to show you how much I got. I feel good. If you are very confident about your sexuality, you don't have to have eight women around you twerking. I mean, why, 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 why are you, why, why are you all like, you seem stressed that you got to be <laughs> acting that way, because cause I've got one woman who I'm very happy with, right? So, and she's a strong woman. So, I, I, I just... Uh, I think part of the challenge we have is is that because oftentimes racism historically in the society sends a message that you are less than and weak, we feel like we've got to compensate by exaggerating certain stereotypical ways that men are supposed to act. And that's a trap that we fall into, that we have to pull out of. Um, if you're confident about your strength, you don't need to, to show me by you putting somebody else down. Show me how strong you are that you can lift somebody else up and, and treat somebody well and be respectful and, and lead in that fashion. I, man, I, that, the, way, the way he ended that, yes. right? show, show me how strong you are by your ability to lift someone else up to me is that to me transcends political religious yes. views. And I, and I know that in my life when I've seen other people do it, I've thought, man, I want to be more like that. This guy seems um, completely unimpressed by the person that needs to always be cutting someone down or is always braggadociously going on and on about who they are or what their accomplishments are. I mean, it's kind of like Roosevelt tried, you know, speak softly, carry a big stick. Yeah. Like if, if you're a man of integrity or it doesn't even need to be a man, a person of integrity in general, um, live that way consistently, right? It's that long obedience in the same direction yeah. idea. But to end that, though, to end that call and that charge, I mean, he's talking about this this idea of of overcompensating through exaggeration mm-hmm. and who among mm-hmm. us hasn't experienced the temptation of that trap. And he he calls it a trap. This idea that um, you're overcompensating because ultimately you're you're scared or um, you struggle to believe something too is about yourself or whatever. So you have to exaggerate. Him, him identifying that as a trap, I thought was a really unique way of it going was. after it because he wasn't just saying, hey, don't do that. It looks stupid. Don't do that. It's unappealing. He's like, no, no, this, this is a thing that will continue to ensnare you. 
and uh, I remember listening to a, a sermon just last week, I think. Mm. This guy was talking about how his mom had raised him to be a, a a plus person, not a minus person. A plus person is someone who goes around like speaking life into the people uh, around them rather okay. than a, a minus person who's always like taking a little jab out of you and a little piece out of you. And he's like, ever since I was six years old, I remember thinking, I want to be a plus person, not a minus person. And that's so like cheeky, maybe reductionistic language, but mm. the idea of show me how strong you are by how you lift other people up to me was such a such a helpful kind of charge and challenge, not just to the people listening, but to but to me personally. Absolutely. Especially in this culture we live in where uh, it seems like the quickest way to the top is to tear people down. Right, right. And um, to have an ex-president, a former president speak in this way, or I don't know if you've heard some of the stuff George W. Bush has been saying in the last year or so mm-hmm. since he got out of office, just so life-giving. And like, uh, it's almost like these guys leave office and they get this perspective that says, you know, how can I better the people around me? How can I, they've seen so much, right? Right. like how can I better the world? And this just plays in the, uh, you know, he's specifically speaking to men. So I want to say this specifically about manhood. Uh, so much about manhood is about what do I look like? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, what, how do people see me? Uh, you know, what's my reputation? And he just ripped into them just kind of like, that's ridiculous. And that's, that's a false narrative that's going to lead you to a bad spot. And right. like you said, I do think the money quote here, speaking to a room full of boys right. is how can you lift other people up? Powerful, powerful stuff. Well, and the thing that I found so fascinating, so the actual headline of the, of the story is Barack Obama and Stephen Curry inspire boys with advice about healthy manhood. That's the actual yep. headline. You post the link on Facebook, and the headline that's generated is Barack Obama cracks up audience with explanation for why life isn't like a hip-hop video. So, really? I, I find that so fast that we so need something to be clickbaity to pique our interest. The article, <laughs> the whole story is about him inspiring boys with healthy advice about manhood. But the the thing that's generated for Facebook is, ah, here he is cracking people up talking about hip hop. And I yeah. think uh, that's unfortunate that something that simply says, hey, we're, we're trying to build up young boys or just young people in general. We're yeah. trying to speak integrity and in life into people like that doesn't have enough steam or traction on its own. So we got to, like, spruce it up to make it more appealing so that people will actually engage with it. We, we wonder where the phrase fake news comes from. Yeah, right? no kidding. No <laughs> like, kidding. Uh, that's interesting. So you clicked on it, like, just to post it online, and uh-huh. up came that. Yep. Wow, that's really fascinating. Because, like, you know, uh, it doesn't matter who I voted for. Whether I ever voted for Barack Obama or not, I want my kid to listen to what he just said there. Yeah, I want for my sure. son particularly because he's talking about manhood. I want him to hear those words. Totally. And if a Republican said those words, I'd want him to hear those words just Absolutely. as much. There is so much truth in there about what it is uh, that makes a man. Um, man, you got sons. You're about to raise sons. You are raising sons, That's but right. you're, you're going to increasingly tackle against this. Uh, this is something that we just need to be teaching our boys day in and day out. Totally, totally. And we've talked about this before, uh, unpacking this idea of what strength looks like, right? Yes. Strength isn't never let them see a sweat, never let them see you cry, having all the answers. In fact, many times strength is the opposite of that, allowing your heart to break, having the courage to say, you know what, I don't have the answers to that. And exactly what he was saying, show me your strength by your ability to lift people up. It isn't weakness by lifting those around you up. And that idea, 
whatever that lie has come from in your life, like burn it to the ground. Yes. It isn't weakness to lift those around you up. And in fact, it's, I think, probably more weakness to, to spend your time, as this pastor was saying, being a minus person and knocking the people around you down. Be someone who speaks life and courage and identity into people, which is sometimes hard truths as well, yes. right? Yes. Um, but to lift those around you up, I think, is such an important call. I, I, I think as we close out this discussion, I think there may have been a guy a long time ago who lived that way. I think he, we might talk about him often named Jesus, <laughs> right? If yeah. you disagree with this premise, I think that Jesus is probably the one that you need to be looking to hmm. as one who lifted others up and pulled people up uh, whose society may not be doing so. Uh, we want to continue to help people understand uh, what, what, what true manhood and womanhood and looks like and to challenge one another to live that way. Well, this has been The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life coming up next. We're going to discuss an article out of the Christianity Today. It just says this, the biggest hindrance to your kids' faith isn't doubt, it's silence. That's what's coming up next on The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm along with Ian Simpkins. You can find us at Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. That's The Common Good Radio Show or online at 1160hope. Dot com. Uh, Ian, you and I both former youth pastors, right? How many years were you a youth pastor? Gosh, good question. Uh, four and a half years, uh, I think. I, yeah. Basically, I was the same four or five years. Were you really? Yeah. What was your favorite part about being a youth pastor? Oh, my gosh. I don't even know where to start. I loved being a youth so pastor. Did I. We had a separate uh, youth building, so they gave us a stage. and sound. I mean, it was really like ragtag, but it was like our space, and we— hosted concerts in the community and we would do events year round and we did missions trips locally and abroad. Like we, man, I just, students for me have this real sense of like, let's go do this thing that we just learned about. There's a mobility and a hunger to like, okay, Jesus said that's important. Let's go after it. You know, rather than like, oh, that was a nice sermon. I'll see you next week. Like they're just like, they hadn't had their idealism beaten out of them yet, you know, just by life. So and true. I always just found that so infectious. I do. You, I think as youth pastors, oftentimes you spend a lot of time trying to get out of youth ministry. Yeah. Like, and I don't think I'd go back to youth ministry right now just because the stage of life and, you know, my daughter's in high school, that right, kind of stuff. Right, but, right, But there was something that I miss about doing ministry with youth, everything from, like, you're expected to go on retreats and mission trips and right. leave town and go do stuff. Right. Uh, and you're, you know, you're, you could just laugh and just be crazy. And yep. like, you're paid to do that. Like, I know. Anyway, why am I bringing up youth pastoring? Well, because a, a fascinating article came out this week in Christianity Today on their website. I'd encourage you to go there. It's titled, The Biggest Hindrance to Your Kids' Faith Isn't Doubt, It's Silence. And mm. let me read to you some of that. If you give me a moment here just to read, let me read it for you guys. Uh, according to our study, which looked at 500 youth group graduates, over 70% of church-going high schoolers report having, quote, serious doubts about faith. Mm. Sadly, less than half of those young people shared their doubts and struggles with an adult or a friend. Yet these students' opportunities to express and explore their doubts were actually correlated with greater faith maturity. Mm. In other words, it's not doubt that's toxic to faith. It's silence. Mm. That's crazy. Yeah. Now, it's not crazy. It actually makes sense. But but I love the last step they made there that all these kids are doubting their faith, which is natural. They're high school, junior high kids, yeah, right? Totally. They are then not talking to anybody about it. But what the study then finds is if they talk about it with somebody, 
their faith comes out the other end more mature and stronger. Right. And so therefore, we've got to figure out ways to give avenues for students and parenthetically adults as well. Yep. Uh, the opportunity to discuss their doubts and their questions. Uh, is this your? Is this what you found in youth ministry? Absolutely. I, I think it's important too because this uh, the story goes on to highlight some of the unique and even understandable ways that so often adults or parents or leaders kind of buck against these questions. Because yep. sometimes, I think sometimes in leadership, we can be so defensive to somebody asking good questions, or yes. maybe even more so if they're bad questions or they're. Um, you know, they're offensive to, you know, the thing that you've given your life to. I think sometimes the instinct can be, no, 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 no don't, don't go there. Don't ask that question. Just, uh, just behave. Yes. Just obey. Just do the thing that I do. And I, I think uh, having enough of self-awareness to put the ego aside for a second, because I think, honestly, adults function the same way. We just maybe have learned more social skills in doing so. But, like, if I'm a 16-year-old kid with serious questions and I see someone else who has the same questions get shut down. Well, I'm not asking any more questions. Yep. Then. That place no longer feels safe for me. Now, that, that isn't to say that there isn't times just to say, hey, this isn't the place for that. Yep. Let's let's grab coffee. Let's talk about that after the small group or after this session. I think there's certainly wise and unwise ways to do that. But I don't know, man. The, the idea of doing student ministry apart from creating space for real questions is doomed. Like yes. if you're if you're not able to give kids, which is why, you know, like the Yellow Box – um, we're running uh, programs through what's called Alpha all the time. And Alpha is designed to bring all your questions, even the ones that feel totally insane. Yes. And people can't get enough of it because there isn't just enough places for people to ask real questions because they feel like, well, I shouldn't ask that or something's wrong with me for thinking that. Yeah. And I don't know, man, creating space for dialogue with, with students is, I think, absolutely critical to, to doing student ministry well. Yeah, and – Listen to what they say here in this article. It says, researchers for the National Study for Youth and Religion discovered that young people have become inarticulate about their faith, Hmm. often lacking the language to express their beliefs and convictions. Hmm. Here comes the money quote. Further exploration revealed another telling part of this story. So have their parents. Right, right. (laughs) That we don't know how to even speak about our faith to articulate our questions, let alone know where to go to find the answers to our questions. But yet the whole image deal is we're not allowed to have questions about our faith. And right. you can just see how dangerous that cycle is. And then you add in kind of students going, no, I want the answer. They're just going to throw their hands up and be like, fine, I, I'm, I'm done with this. Well, and I wonder if that's some of the impetus behind why parents feel inclined to shut the conversation down. Because yeah. deep down they're like, I don't have the answers to this. Which I think parents would do well to remember that one of the most life-giving things you can say to your kids is, I don't know. Yes. I, I think that's so freeing. For a parent to say, you know, I don't know. Why don't we find out together? Yep. Why don't we read a book together? Let's yep. take this journey together. You don't have to have all the answers. In fact, I think students often sniff that out. If you pretend to have all the answers and you just don't, yep. like to engage in a helpful dialogue, maybe ask them. Maybe there's a book they're interested in reading that yep. to you seems way too out there, or too risky. Say, wow, why don't we read this together? Let's talk about this together and create space for a dialogue. I think that would be so not just theologically enriching, but relationally enriching. Like, well, now you've journeyed, and it may not change either of your minds, but you've now built a common bond. Like, okay, we read this book from this guy that I thought was a heretic or (laughs) an author that I thought was way off his rocker or her rocker or whatever. I just think there's so many good things that can happen as a result of willingness to say, you know what, I don't know. Let's find out together. And I think there comes a faith in this that says, 
I trust, do I as a parent and as an adult trust that on the other end of this, that God's truth is going to stand? Yeah, right, right. Like, right. That in the end, I may not have to have all the answers and my kid can still be okay. Uh, and I just think in my own life, like my kids, if I'm willing to have conversations with them, and like you said, say, I don't know, or yeah. I'll find that out. I right. think you see them respect the fact that we're having the conversation. And I think for parents, you got to be, you, you got to be willing to dive into these. My, my fourth grader uh, asked me the other day, a really hard theological question. Hmm. And my first instinct, I'm a pastor. My first instinct was like, I got to get out of this situation. Hmm. Like, I got to shut this down. But yeah. and then I, I, I thought about it and I said, okay, let's just try to talk. And it was all, it was almost one of those nonsensical, uh, how did this happen in the Old Testament questions that right. you really can't answer. Right. But I had to take time and talk her through it and right. this and that. And the easier thing would have just been like, uh, nope, nope, Jesus, go. The answer is always Jesus. See you tomorrow. Is Jesus. So I think for all of us, especially with parents with kids as they get older, but also as pastors, but but this also speaks to the need for people out there who don't have students at, at age kids to get involved in youth ministries, to get yeah, involved totally. in things reaching out. These are not just the, the church of the future. It's the church of the present. Well, and I think be sure to uh, be mindful of the things that kind of trip your trigger, right? So if a kid says something that, is an honest question, but they ask it in a way that's uh, you know really critical of something that you believe. Yeah, like have the courage to say, okay, <laughs> that could have maybe been worded better, but recognize that you're being triggered in that moment, and honestly, maybe swallow your pride to actually create space yep. for that conversation rather than you know the need to retaliate when a question's asked in a way that feels you know offensive to our senses. I think it's helpful to to check those at the door a little bit yeah. in order to actually engage in a dialogue. And the last thing that this article does to me is to say, huh, is my church at all, is my church's youth ministry at all situated to allow students to grow in the way they need to grow? Yeah, totally. Or is it more the old school model that says, give them pizza, give right. them a fun game, <laughs> right, right. get them in the church, yep. and away we go. So uh, good things for us to think about as pastors. Well, Ian, you know what time it is. Time for kickers? Land the plane. <laughs> Time to land the plane. Coming up next, we always like to end the show with just some fun stuff we found on the internet. So we're going to do that next coming up here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. My name is Brian Fromm. I've been joined all day here by my co-host Ian Simpkins, but Ian had to bow out just before this last segment. Uh, so I'm going to land this plane by myself today. Uh, you can find old shows online at 1160hope.com, or you can go to Facebook and find uh, everything there at The Common Good Radio Show. That's The Common Good Radio Show. We post articles of things we've talked about uh, and all sorts of other things, but we love when people are commenting and telling us about the show, things you want to hear. Uh, we want to be much. Uh, we want to be interactive with you. So, uh, if you would like to do that, go on to our Facebook page and feel free to share anything you want. Uh, you can also download our podcasts anywhere it is that you get your podcast. Well, it's usually this time of the show as we are closing it out. That Ian and I we've talked a lot about some heavy stuff today about grief, uh, about um, you know the Robert Kraft prostitution story. We had some great interviews about social justice, all good stuff, but uh, some heavy stuff, some hard stuff. So we want to just end the show with some lighter material. And that's what we always do at the end here, uh, just with some insane stories we have found from the internet. So I'm going to give you some of those. If you ever have good ones of these, you could always post them on our uh, Facebook page. Again, that's at the Common Good Radio Show. 
Here's the first one. I believe this is out of New York. Listen to this. Listen to this headline. Granddad downs half a pot of paint, mistaking it for yogurt, and he has no regrets. A 90-year-old granddad has somehow managed to drink half a can of paint with no adverse side effects whatsoever. Not only that, but whereas the rest of us might be feeling a little, quote, off color, he remains unfazed. Alex Stein from New York last week posted about her granddad, Bobby, who loves yogurt. He's 90 years old. Bobby had mistaken a can of mint green paint for his favorite food item, and he downed half of it. Alex discovered the half-empty can of paint, and Bobby, complete with mint green mouth because of the paint, she posted a picture of him with the caption, So my grandpa ate half a quart of paint today thinking it was yogurt. Speaking to Mail Online, she explained, When I say he loves yogurt, he lives for yogurt. Alex added, My grandpa has always loved entertaining people. He doesn't care whether people are laughing at him or with him, but what does the granddad make of it all? Taking to Instagram to gain his version of events. Hold on. This 90-year-old is on Instagram? That's I can't even figure out Instagram. I'm 41. This is awesome. He wrote this. Apparently, I ate paint this morning. Honestly, he wrote, tastes better than yogurt, so no regrets. Parenthetically, poison control laughed at me, but they said, I'll be fine. Uh, that is one of my favorite 90 year olds I've ever read about. I want that guy to, I want to be that guy when I get older, eating paint and not caring about it at all. Our producer's laughing and then across the way because yeah, I think he ate paint today. So here we go. Out of New York. You might remember one of our very first shows out of England. We talked about something called a fatberg if you listened all back in that day. Well, now they've come to New York and we read this headline New York City waging costly war against fatbergs. New Yorkers are told not to flush wipes, dental floss, and other plastics down the drain, but they do it anyway. When all that waste combines, it creates a clog known as a fatberg. It causes backups and is costing the city a fortune. From the toilet to the Newtown Creek wastewater treatment plant, cooking grease combined with baby wipes is ruining equipment and as a Department of Environmental Protection workers doing overtime to weed it out. And so what's happening is people, you know, you're always told don't flush these things and they're they're just coagulating. They're all coming together into these enormous iceberg type things, but made of fat and other products, hence the name Fatberg. Last month, workers had to remove one such enormous clog from the pipes in Jamaica, Queens, and it is costing. uh, It said last year, almost 90 percent of the city's sewer backups were caused by grease and wipes. The price tag for this cleanup, get this, is around $18 million, triple from a decade ago. And so you've got your do's and your don'ts, right? Don't flush wipes, don't flush trash, don't flush grease, don't go with dirty baby, like diapers, all that kind of stuff. Because uh, the city of New York is calling it the fight against fatbergs, with the goal being a fatberg-free New York City. I think we can all get on that one. California. The Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, says injecting yourself with young plasma has no benefit, so stop doing it. The FDA has issued a warning after recent reports of various establishments in several states offering infusions of plasma from, quote, young donors that allegedly treat a variety of conditions. These conditions range from normal aging and memory loss to more serious diseases like dementia, Parkinson's disease, 
and Alzheimer. The FDA came out this week and said there is no proven clinical benefit of infusion of plasma from young donors to cure, mitigate, treat, or prevent these conditions. Health officials say treatments using plasma from young donors have not been properly tested to confirm any benefit. And they said, therefore, we strongly discourage consumers from pursuing this therapy outside of clinical trials. Don't keep injecting yourself with young plasma. We always go to Florida in these. Florida peanut butter jar puts a trash panda in a jam. You might know a trash panda, otherwise known as a raccoon. One furry bandit with a pension for peanut butter is lucky to be alive after a rescue nearly three stories up. Uh, This guy named Joe Milo was headed to a landscape job on Friday morning when he saw a raccoon 25 feet in the air on top of a light pole. But he wasn't just up there. His head, the raccoon's head, was stuck in a plastic peanut butter jar as it was perched high above the ground. Eventually, they went up there and they got him down and they freed him uh, from his jam. Josh, you see what I did there? Peanut butter, freedom from the jam. No, no good. No good. I thought that was good. I am also, if those of you will learn about me, people in my church know this about me. I have a phobia. I am I am uh, pretty scared of raccoons. So uh, hence the people in my church send me raccoon pictures all the time. But uh, it, it is it is a fear of mine. Last one out of California. University of California, San Diego studies if social media is like marijuana. A San Diego researcher is looking into whether social media affects the teenage brain in the same way as marijuana. Uh, A child psychiatrist and assistant, assistant professor at the University of California, San Diego, believes her findings could change how medical professionals view adolescents' usage of various social media. Kids keep using social media, she says, even in the face of negative consequences, and that's what we see with drug usage as well. The doctor's team will scan 60 teenagers' brains as they look at images from social media and then pictures of marijuana. They are still compiling results and recruiting more teenagers for the study, but anticipate having it complete by the summer. The study is part of the Adolescent Brain Cognitive Development Initiative, a nationwide effort tracking more than 12,000 children uh, across a decade. We talk about this often on this show. Uh, whether it's like drug use or not, social media in teenagers is an enormous, enormous deal. Uh, and we would be careful. We would be remiss not to say if you've got teenagers like I do in my house, uh, you got to really, really think through what is my social media intake going to look like? What is their social media intake going to look like? Well, that's just some crazy stories we like to end the day with. It's been a good day here on The Common Good. Like I said, we've tackled some hard subject. We've tackled some easy subjects and some funny ones. You can find them at 1160hope.com or wherever you get your podcast if you weren't able to listen today. Again, my, my name is Brian Fromm, joined usually by Ian Simpkins. This is The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Have a great Monday evening, Chicagoland. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn. 
deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.